We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes, the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We are here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Ooh, Don Palumbo. Jonah Lanto. That hits different in Minneapolis. I think it does. Yeah, Everything it really does. It just, it just feels different. Yeah, it's very it's cool. Big smiles. Yeah. I can't stop smiling. I sound like I'm smiling, and I, <laughs> I am. Yeah. I don't, you can tell this whole story with a smile tonight. Well, I no, no. I feel like that would be weird. Okay. That would be very weird and uh, and quite creepy if you, if you if I might if say you really think myself, about yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. We're in for a ride, it sounds like. I think so. Yeah. And I'm I'm doing a Minnesota case. I figured that would be it would only be right, right? Maybe. Anyway, thank you to everybody for being here with us this evening again. Being here absolutely blows my mind. A big thanks to Arbiter Brewing Company. They've been great to partner with. I support them, drink their beer, tip them well. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. I agree. Strawberry rhubarb. Yeah, I like the peach. Well, thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast. We are so grateful for the comments, the feedback, and the support that we've received from our listeners. We, we really, truly appreciate it because we live and die by an algorithm. So, Jonah, what are people saying about Midwest murder? Hopefully good things, maybe a little better than last time. Sometimes we take some okay. punches in these, okay? Last time, last time. The reviews time, are not always nice, guys. No, and I, I wish I would have had a, a small <laughs> heads up because I was like... No heads up. What? I was, uh, yeah, I was caught off guard. I didn't lose sleep over it. I no, it's, it. I, I think they're fun. Mostly they're inspiring. Other times they, little moments of self-reflection and come down to earth a little bit and getting some, bitch slapped in a review happens and sometimes it's kind of a bummer. Sometimes you're told you're intellectually lazy. Yeah. It's totally fine. Yeah. It's fine. No, it happens the best of us. Yes. This one is from D. Ray. Five stars. I'm here for Don. Oh, oh. Did you pick this one because you, you no, kicked my me, ass last time? Well, let me tell you, D. Ray. <laughs> I'm also here for. Uh-oh. I'm also here for yeah. Don. Yeah. Okay. Don's quotes alone make it worth the listen. Quote: Don't be sorry. Be better. And the fact that she doesn't like Willy Wonka turned me into a new and avid listener. That's all it took. Thank you. Just to, <laughs> thanks. As long as I've got somebody in my court there. Yeah. That a lot is, of. Yeah, no, oh. no Huscat and no Willy Wonka. Yeah. None. Yeah, Dawn, no. don't, don't be sorry, be better. And I got to tell you, she is oftentimes here giving me moral support during these live events as I stumble through the technical difficulties of being my own roadie. Yeah. And I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to touch the, the microphones finally. Like, I've, I've, I've like, taken a step up. What do they call it? I've been promoted. Yeah. And then it's usually just Because like, you're being better. I know. I'm, yeah. yeah. You're yeah. not sorry. I'm you not, can't help. I'm, you chose to I'm, be better. I'm just being better. And then I'm like, you're doing a great job, Jonah. Good job. Yeah. This one's from DJ Shots 23. Five stars. Hands down, the best crime podcast out there. Whoa, no pressure. So I started listening to true crime podcasts for some background noise. Since most hosts are boring and monotone, they put me right to bed. 
not this one. Jonah's storytelling is top-notch. You can tell he takes a lot of pride in his work. Add Don's personality and sense of humor to the mix, this duo is great together. But you can also feel and hear the pain in their voices when talking about the victims. This podcast is a roller coaster of emotions that now keeps me up late on Sunday. The greatest thing about these guys is they are giving back to the community. I like that one. That's well, super thanks, cool. Thanks, yeah. Shots. That's pretty yeah, cool. DJ that's, Shots. That's super cool. Pretty uh, sweet. Speaking of speaking of shots. Speaking of shots, this not was related. not planned. Not, not related, not and planned. And not related. Uh, raise your hand if you've been to, to Minot, North Dakota and have had shots. Crossroads. Shots, crossroads. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Great crowd. Yeah. yeah. Like fries Love and the ranch. It's my Yeah. So you better get your ranch ready because if you need some good stuff, check them out. If you are in the area, you know that you're going to leave well fed. And if you're just passing through, let us remind you that Shots Crossroads has big portions and always competitive prices. Even when you're getting a tank of gas, they usually have a lower price per gallon than the surrounding stores, which is kind of cool because then if I'm, I'm probably not saving any money if I drive across town to save money, but I try. You so. are saving money if it means there's really high quality ranch there, well, Don. Like, it's okay. all worth it. Then. Let's think about yeah. the value get right there. <laughs> I know, exactly. So um, among the uh, competitive prices or besides that and the big portions, you also get consistency, friendly faces, social atmosphere, and always a consistent product. And if you go after uh, 10 o'clock, you usually get a drunk. So, you know, that's that's usually the crowd there. So it's always always entertainment, too. Yeah, got to love them. And yeah. if you pay with cash for your gas, seven cents off additional per gallon. So we, we're really stoked about their support. Love the pies. Yeah. I'm a big fan of chicken strips and crispy French fries at the Cider Ranch. Last time I went, however, I did get the gravy in favor of the ranch. And boy, let me tell you, we've got, I got a dilemma on my hands, Don. A um, ranch versus gravy dilemma at Shots, let me tell you. I don't know why it's a dilemma. I usually just get both. Like, oh, I'm, and I'm not... I'm now. I'm not. I'm not plugging them. I'm. I'm being honest. Like that's. That's. Well, that's a rookie. A lot of you guys pal. probably didn't know this. Don Problem Solver Palumbo. That's actually 100%. her nickname. It's what we call her in the business. And now you've solved my ranch versus gravy dilemma. I'm curious how many times uh, people don't laugh. It doesn't matter. You know, like I'm like keep when that them. will stop you, right? Like I don't know. I I appreciate the effort. All right. Oh, and then also you can buy us a hot dish. You can support the show. Um, it's not like actually a hot dish. That would be that would be weird. No, but we use that money that you donate us, us at yeah. buymeacoffee.com/slash/midwestmurder, and we make hot dish and we eat it, and it's really yeah. delicious, and but we like it's, that. Uh, it's by supporting the yeah. show, you um, you know it case helps us pay files, for case files, gas money, yeah, all that stuff. So we appreciate those of you who do, and, and thank you so much. We also have merch. Jonah, where are I thinking? There's I a place people can find our merch. It's tpublic.com slash stores slash Midwest Murder. There's links on our Instagram and Facebook. We made it easy for you. And there's a okay. sale right now, too. So oh, check cool. it out. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's get into it. The year was 1977. Jimmy Carter was uh, the uh, was sworn in. I couldn't remember the word there for a second, so I had to hold my hand up and it came to me. Uh, the sworn in is the 39th president. Apple Computer was incorporated. So uh, 77. Okay. As I'm as I'm sitting here typing on an iPad, there I am. They've got me right where they want me. Uh, <laughs> Roots uh, Roots debuted on ABC, like kind of shattering records, and uh, and and of course. Um, uh, LeVar Burton, who was the, the main actor in there, but I only knew him because 77 was before my time. I knew him from reading Rainbow. And then I was like, hey, that's okay. the guy. That's yeah. why that rings that's, a bell. Yeah. Uh, one of the best albums in history, Please Nobody Come At Me, but Rumors by Fleetwood Mac was released. It's a great album. Oh my gosh. If, I'm hoping that he falls asleep on the way home because it's usually, it's usually Fleetwood Mac or Hamilton. So that's, like, that's, what it, that's what it usually is. Elvis died that year, August 16th, so coming up. Some I, I can't do the math, but 
77 or 2022 minus 77. No, we promised people yeah. there will be no math <laughs> yeah. at these shows. This I'm, I'm is just, Midwest murder, not Midwest math. I'm just saying it would be math. something easy because that's yeah. like that's no. something ending in five. I know that. Um, Nobody <laughs> here is ready for a test. Meatloaf's album, Bad Out of Hell, you know, I that's mean, a good one. Paradise by the Dashboard yep. Light, right? That was also released. Oakland Raiders beat the Vikings in the Super Bowl. Oh, I, why'd you do that to these nice people? We're, we're in the Twin Cities. This is you know, Vikings territory. 1977, I, that pain is still here. Hey, I am not shit-talking the Vikings, so I think you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, the uh, the Trailblazers defeated the 76ers in the NBA Finals. It was like, you know, a year after. Yeah. Anyway, I used to be a fan of the 76ers. In today's episode, we travel to one of my favorite places on Earth, Duluth, Minnesota. So if you're coming from the North Shore of Lake Superior, you hop on Highway 61, which turns into London Road. And as you're following the winding ways that hug the properties along Lake Superior, you've likely looked around and noticed the gorgeous setting around you. The massive rocky lake is a backdrop with mature trees setting the barrier between properties dotted with homes set far back from the busy road. On one side of the street, he, he, he likes it. He wants to go. <laughs> Riblet, right? Riblet. See? Riblet wants to go to Duluth. On one side of the street, you'll see somewhat modest yet beautiful older homes. And on the other, you can't help but notice the sprawling lawns of the gated large homes that can count the rocky shore of Lake Superior as their backyards. So, you know, one side is, you know, modest and kind of normal, and then the other is far from it. Why haven't I been there? That sounds, I don't know. sounds lovely. Know. We were talking about it on the way up here, and I'm, I want to go, but not, not, not this trip, I guess. We're a little... Yeah, got some places to be tomorrow. One of those homes is none other than the 39-room Glensheen Mansion. And to fully understand the murders that make up the dark past of the Glensheen Mansion, you have to get to know the family first. Chester Congdon was a New Yorker, born in 1853, and he was the epitome of the, the cliché self-made man. It didn't come easy for him, and after his father and three of his siblings died within one month, one month, Three siblings and his dad. Like, I feel like the I just got goosebumps. Yeah. But, you know, it, the, the siblings were scarlet fever and uh, just, just awful. As I type that, I'm like, whoa, that is, uh, that's, that's a lot. 14-year-old Chester then became responsible for his mother, sister, and brother. Wanting to stay close to the, his remaining family, when he turned 18, he enrolled in Syracuse University. And whenever possible, he sent money to assist paying off the family farm but worried about not being able to send more because he was also paying his annual tuition of $200. That's uh, 200 bucks is a fortune back then. Right. And he's paying it himself. And he's sending money back yeah. home to his mother. Yep. So he promised his mother they would, quote, all revel in luxury someday. We will, we will infinite, we'll be infinitely better off than the large majority. I want to be better off than everybody else. While at Syracuse University, he met his bride-to-be, Clara Bannister, who was also enrolled. And this is like the 1800s and she's enrolled in college. So if I may point that out. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Surprised they let so, her in. Although they were a romantic couple, they chose not to marry until Chester was able to establish himself professionally. Okay. It's responsible. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if you, you know, can't pay for yourself, then, you know, how do you support a family, right? So Clara didn't come from the challenging background her future husband did. Originally from California, she was the daughter of a Methodist minister. Showing just as much determination as Chester, Clara was one of the first seven women from Syracuse to graduate from Syracuse University. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, I think that's worth, that's like, a moment in history. That's worth framing. Yeah, that's a piece yeah. of history for yeah. sure. Yeah. 
Following graduation, she immediately took a position in Canada teaching art and modern languages at a women's college in Bellevue, Ontario. Belleville, Ontario. Isn't it interesting she was allowed to teach but not own property back then? <laughs> right. Like, hey, right. you can right. teach our boys, but you can't own a house with them. Oh, no, it was a women's college. It was a, it was a women's. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, okay. So, I mean, Makes even more sense. Right, right. That's why. She can't sign her own check, and, you know, she needs her dad to do anything for her. But, yeah, that's, that's good. I mean, at least she had some rights. And she wasn't a woman of color, so that made it easy, even easier. Of course. So anyway, back to, back to Chester. Struggling to find his place as quickly as Clara did after graduation, he moved to Wisconsin in 1878 when he accepted an education position instead of pursuing a law career in New York. So coming from New York to Wisconsin in the late 1800s. Culture shock. <laughs> a, little, a little bit. And probably a little bit cleaner, too, but. Just a year later, after deciding he wasn't going to continue life in poverty, he moved on to St. Paul to open a law practice, but he didn't lay those upper-class roots down like he'd expected. He was struggling to support himself and his mother back home. In a letter to Clara in 1880, he explained his net worth was $9.67 in cash, $5 receivable, receivable from his firm, $8 in prepaid rent, a $5.75 meal ticket, two pounds of crackers, Two pounds of canned meat and a half a pound of coffee. So, boy, I mean, he's not really he's not really killing it, you know. It's, Just yeah. a time when your worth could be defined by how many crackers you owned. <laughs> boy, let me tell you, if you poked your head into my pantry, I'd be a cracker cracker millionaire. I would I would be very poor. No. I don't like yeah, I don't like crackers. But also, when did we stop uh, weighing crackers in pounds? <laughs> I don't know. That's curious. Google it. But I'd give it all up for the coffee, boy, let me tell you. Yeah, a half pound of coffee, like, uh, respectable. Two, two pounds of canned meat, I'll get protein not from that. It's fine. That's <laughs> gross. But I guess in 1880, you do what you have to. His professional outlook would remain grim until he met U.S. District Attorney William Bilson. He became Bilson's assistant. I'm sorry, William Bilson. Like, hey, parents, really? Like, your kid's name almost rhymes. It's, like, almost as bad as Julia Gulia, and it's uh, William Bilson. But anyway, I'm not making fun of him. They called him Willy Billy. <laughs> Wow, that was a good one. Just You're laughing at yourself. Yeah. He became Bilson's assistant and finally began making money. When Bilson left for Duluth, he moved into his own position as a U.S. district attorney. So finally, after meeting 10 years earlier, Clara and Chester were married in Syracuse. They began their family almost immediately. Walter Bannister Congdon was born in St. Paul in 1882. In 1884, Chester left the U.S. district attorney's office to begin his own practice. As his practice and client list grew, so did his family. Edward Chester was born in 1885, Marjorie in 1887, Helen Clara in 1889, and John Robert in 1891. Not staying in one place for too long and looking to establish the upper-class roots that he had desired, he moved the family to Duluth in 1892 to partner with his former colleague, Willie Billy, or William Bilson. <laughs> Once there, they represented the Oliver Mining Company in negotiations over mining rights in the Misabi Iron Range. It was also the time of the newly formed U.S. Steel Corporation. So, you know, like U.S. Steel, buy local, all that stuff. So we're talking like the out east, right? It's a, like a, it's a big dang deal. Yeah, these guys were making moves. Yeah, yeah, and money. So when Congdon purchased some inexpensive mining land in the Misabi Range in northeastern Minnesota... This is where he made his money because he leased it to Carnegie. Well, and okay, I'm going to, say, I'm going to talk about Andrew, Andrew Carnegie or depending on where you're from, Carnegie. So on the East Coast, where he is from, it's actually pronounced Carnegie, but we call it 
Carnegie. So just a little fun fact for you. And he was, I think Andrew um, Carnegie was an asshole. Like uh, he was uh, big time, actually. He almost single-handedly caused the, the great Johnstown flood in the, in the late 1870s because they had to lower the, the dike or the dam to let their, um, their carriages cross. So it was easier for them. So, um, yeah, you know, killed a few hundred people. It's fine. Uh, I mean, it's totally fine. So, uh, real, yeah, real cool stand-up guy. Real cool. Yeah. Um, Elite. But it was, it was Congdon who was kind of, kind of getting the last laugh because he was making bank on that. So once he started making that money, then he continued to diversify into other mining companies as well as developing Congdon orchards in Washington. So like apples, like we still drink the apple juice to this day. So the success was not without heartache though. Just days before his second birthday, John Robert Congdon, the fourth child in the Congdon family, died of scarlet fever. And the family continued to grow though. In, 19, in 1894, the third Congdon daughter, Elizabeth Mannering, was born. In 1895, Clara's orphaned nephew, Alfred, came to live with the family. And in 1898, Robert was born, making him the last child born to Chester and Clara Congdon. Okay, there's babies and kids everywhere. We've <laughs> lost one. We got a nephew in, out of the deal. Right. What are we, about like six kids here, half a dozen uh, or so? Yeah, and uh, seven actually. And then, okay. But I wanted, to, I wanted to do the math here quickly. Uh-oh. I know, I know. So he was born in 1853, and the last kid was born in 1898. I mean, even He's in today, years old? even today's standards, Whoa. things aren't working like they used to, but they made it happen. So I was, that's, uh, that's interesting. You guys could have laughed a little more at that, but that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. So shortly after the turn of the century, though, Chester and his family had far exceeded his goal of being, quote, better off than everybody else. I would, I would say. So following his retirement from practicing law in 1904, Chester and Clara began building their estate that they, that made that clear to everyone. He was a Republican through and through, and he believed in free market capitalism, but was strongly opposed to the ways of the major tycoons of the time, J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller, and one of, again, his least favorite people, and apparently mine, uh, Andrew Carnegie. Hated that guy. He did. So he felt that they were out for themselves by hoarding money and then loaning it at ridiculous interest rates. Which Surprise, still works today. Still works. Still paying that. Boy, they, totally cool. they planted that one. Yeah. <laughs> So also on his list were, uh, well, of course, North Dakota's sweetheart, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. He felt old Teddy used corporate interest to bankroll his campaign for presidency, which I feel like they all do. But uh, and Wilson looked the other way when it came to corruption among the elite. Again, like just really setting those standards for today. So 19 19- Wilson is a bottom five all time president. Bottom five. <laughs> Are you making that up or like, no, you... no, it's real. He's, he's, he was terrible. Sorry. That's a whole, that's a whole other podcast <laughs> altogether, but should man, we start a presidential podcast? Just because... this, Wilson made this guy's list of people who suck. And boy, let me tell you, he got that part right. Yeah. Well, I mean, he must have had something going for him because uh, again, Andrew Carnegie, I, right. don't, I don't like him really, really need to let that one go. Anyway, um, in 1908, prior to the completion of that family home, Chester took office as a Republican representative from the 51st district. He'd served two terms. The same year, after several years of construction, the Glensheen Mansion, named after Chester's ancestral home in Surrey, England, was finished. If you've been to the Glensheen Mansion property, it is immediately evident it was a place well ahead of its time. Raise your hand if you've been there. Have you guys been there? A lot of people, okay. Yeah. I need to go. Yeah, you do. And what's interesting is on the tours, um, 
like kind of before they before they regulated everything, uh, the the poor, well, the poor students. Like they were just given the tours. I mean, they just made shit up like crazy. And so I was like, oh my gosh, that's fascinating. And then, you know, doing research years later, reading the book, it's like, you lying bastard. That's, <laughs> hope you, hope you're doing well. Yeah. Anyway, but it's a good tour. I, I recommend it. So the construction alone is a sight to see with ceilings 16 inches thick, 16 inches thick, filled with fire resistant tiles. It was plumbed for electricity as well as gas for the lamps. It also had running hot water, which was absolutely unheard of at that time. Wow. Yeah. And like the, the, the patent for electricity wasn't even completed yet. And so I guess it pays to know people. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was plumbed. That's why it was plumbed for both. Super so yeah, so far I'm seeing significant evidence. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And how much money you have. Yes. Right. Yeah. And keeping the landscaping grounds in mind, the utilities and and when I say that, I think that's a nice way of saying that um, to stop the property from looking like shit, uh, they brought the utilities into the mansion underground through a tunnel um, under London Road. So the, the main road that it's on. We're throwing underground tunnels into the mix here. <laughs> right. Okay. It's getting yeah. good. I mean, I, I don't think it's a big tunnel, but oh. yeah. The home, which has 39 rooms and 16 bedrooms, was not just built for beauty. It was also necessary for it to be functional and self-sufficient. There was a large vegetable garden, a greenhouse, an orchard, a cow barn, and a water reservoir. And also a, um, a horse stable, too. They didn't forget about the fun, though. Of course, they had the horses. And the estate also had a concrete and wood boathouse that was built on the shore of Lake Superior. And they also had a, uh, a pier. And it was the only pier that was actually listed on maps. So, uh, again, just be super... Super rich. Just, and just you get, a landmark. And you, and you get shit on, you, on maps. You, imagine just yeah. knowing I'm building a landmark here. Well, right? I, and mean, I, th- I thought yeah. you said when they didn't forget about the fun, you were going to say maybe they put a water slide into the reservoir or something and it's just some wood boathouse. Okay. Well, it was like the early 1900s. Well, this guy I mean, was ahead of his time. Wow. He had electricity. Add the slide. <laughs> okay. He skimped on the, on the slide into the reservoir. Yeah. Gosh. And you really failed. Yeah. So opulence does not come cheap, though. The 12-acre Glensheen Estate was built for a cost of $854,000. Or? $27.5 million in today. today's money. Wow. Yeah. So from 1908 to 2022. That's a, that's a really, really large percentage in uh, inflation. I'm not going to do the math, but it's no. a lot. I can't, I can't do 2022 from 1977, so I'm certainly not going to do that one. Yeah. One of the biggest goals of building an estate like this was creating a place for their family to enjoy for generations. Sadly, Chester didn't have much time in the home, and he passed away from a heart attack in 1916. But of course, life continued. Walter was already married at the time of his father's passing. Elizabeth left college at Vassar, and so she's no, she's no dummy, to move back to Glensheen with her mother. By 1920, Marjorie, Helen, and Edward would all be married as well. Robert attended prep school for his remaining years, followed by Yale, then marrying in 1922. Claire's nephew, Alfred, returned to Glensheen after attending MIT, living there for most of the 1920s. Boy, they're checking all the boxes. Yeah. I mean, they've they've got them. And what's interesting in this, going back to kind of when the house was finished, the only two that spent any of their childhood in the house uh, were Elizabeth and Robert. And so, um, just a fun fact. Maybe I should give a tour. That'd be fun. Maybe you should be the tour guide. Missing your calling. That's what I meant. 
yeah, I'll be a tour guide. It'd be great. It would totally stay on point and on track. Walter and Edward then, after following their, their father's death, Walter and Edward took over the family businesses. Claire and Elizabeth would continue to oversee the Glensheen estate. Never returning to college, Elizabeth lived a very charitable life, not only donating monetarily, but also her time. One, uh, one family member close, uh, close to them said that you could fill a book with all of her volunteer hours. So that's cool. She was dedicated to her community and volunteering, even establishing a women's clinic in the 1930s with her friend and physician, Elizabeth Bagley, who they would later um, travel all over with or together. So her friend was also Mm -hmm. Elizabeth. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Except one was spelt with an S, one was a Z. Yeah. I I don't know. Call her Liz. I don't know. That Z, you were living on the edge back then if you spelt it with the Z. Were you? Yeah. Okay. It was like the fancy way to spell it. (laughs) The fancy way. Okay. It's like, well... Wait, did no. you? No? No. <laughs> I no. thought there was more. I was like, wait, nope. I, no? Okay. Although she came from one of the most affluent, affluent families in Minnesota, those who knew her said you wouldn't know by looking at her. She did not think that uh, fancy clothes were worth it, and she was, she was very modest. So Elizabeth was the only Congdon child to remain unwed. For a time, she was involved with Fred Walven, who came from a prominent Duluth family as well. Although she eventually turned down his marriage proposal, they would remain friends. And upon his death in 1941, his estate was instructed to leave money to Elizabeth to buy a ring as a symbol of their friendship. And with that, she did. She purchased a sapphire diamond ring she religiously wore on her pinky finger till the day she died. So that's sweet, right? It's okay. like, that's super cute. I mean, yeah. I have my theory as to why they didn't get married, but if you promise to, to nah, no. no, I'm not gonna. No. Never mind. I was gonna say, if you promise to Jonah out, I'll share it with you, but I'm not gonna. Never mind. So in 1932, absolutely unheard of at this time, Elizabeth adopted a three-month-old baby girl in North, North Carolina, naming her Marjorie after her sister. It's 1932. She's a woman. She can't open up her own bank account if she needed one. And she's unwed, and she adopted a baby. Well, I'm surprised they even let her do it without a man's permission back in 32. Well, again, with, as, yeah. with money, it doesn't, I don't think it I matters. Suppose. I'm you getting lay, very, you lay enough I, money on the table. Yeah. Yeah. I hope she was mouthy about it too. I just have a feeling she was and I like it. Like that's, they tried to, they tried to stop her and she was like, oh yeah. Yeah. That's what I, I'm hoping for. So just three years later, Jennifer Susan joined Elizabeth's family as well. So she adopted two children in the thirties. Upon Jennifer's arrival, Marjorie's already troublesome behavior only got worse. Elizabeth's siblings played active roles in raising the girls, trying to be good role models, along with Clara until her death. Brothers Edward and Robert were constant male presence in the girls' lives. And the girls' lives, of course, would be privileged with travel, formal dinners, and boarding school. And Elizabeth would also instill the importance of volunteerism in them. Volunteering at the hospital during World War II, they would uh, roll bandages and just be there to, to help in any way they could. This might catch me later, but I'm going to say Elizabeth seems like a nice lady. I know. I think she so, too. She seems like a really yeah. nice lady. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, and, just, and, and one that was, even though, of course, raised in opulence, raised with, with privilege that people can only dream of, uh, she didn't let it show. I think that's, uh, that's pretty big. So it has been proven time and time again, though, that money and privilege cannot protect you from the less desirable things in life. Oh they, boy. They can help you hide them, but sure. they never actually go away. And at the age of 16, after a very troubled uh, childhood, after um, supposedly uh, getting caught poisoning the horse that she asked for but then didn't want, 
Marjorie, she was she was troubled. So, so Marjorie allegedly had a horse, decided she didn't want it, yeah. then possibly yeah. poisoned so, it. And okay. it. That's one they, way they to say, solve your problems. Yeah, they right. They say um, they they say that Elizabeth just wanted the girls to be happy. Of right? course, that's what we all want as parents. Yep. But she would give them anything to to be happy, right? And just completely giving into them and, and I'm, um, yeah. I'm like, I'm picturing that temper tantrum girl from Willy Wonka. It, it, Violet. That's, yes, Violet. Violet. That's yes. who I picture, that's yeah. who I picture now. Yep, I, I would, you know what, I, I think that's actually a fair, a fair uh, uh, description, yeah. Cool. Um, and, but Violet was in, in Willy Wonka. What, what's with the Willy Wonka reference, serious? I don't know. Anyway. I dug it out. Yeah, good one. But she didn't try to poison her horse, so. Um, but Marjorie supposedly did. So later, uh, at, at 16, she was diagnosed as a sociopath during a stay at a clinic in Topeka, Kansas in 1949. Whoa. And this is, this is the disappointing part, though. Fearing publicity, and of course the bad press, Elizabeth chose not to take any action or treatment. That can't be true. Right. She can't be a sociopath. I'm rich. Well, what do you mean? Yeah, I know. It's, We're rich. There's no sociopaths in this family. Well, I mean, at least you can pay. If you can pay to get the kid, I'm sure you can pay to hide it too. But um, the diagnosis, not the kid. Like that's not what I. That's <laughs> well, not what I meant. Well, you could probably do. I that mean, you could too. do that too. But I just wanted to clarify. I mean, we've seen it. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I do that. I, I do that when um, and then bring attention to what I didn't want people to think, and then then I just put that in your head. Super fun conversations are so fun with me. Um, anyway, so money and privilege they also don't protect you from loss. Elizabeth experienced a lot of it and would become the only living child of Chester and Clara Congdon. Edward died of a heart attack in 1940. Walter from the same in 1949. Clara died in 1950, and Alfred died in 1952. Wow. And then so I mean by by the end of the 50s, she was the only living, only living child. In 1951, Marjorie married an insurance executive, Dick LeRoy. Together in St. Louis, Missouri, their marriage would bring seven children. Seven. All born within a decade. Wow. A lot of so kids. She spent a decade just popping just, kids out. Just being pregnant with kids. My yeah. family died. I got to replace them. Here's, here's half a dozen well, kids. Well, I think Marjorie was fine with people yeah. dying. I think she was okay with that. Uh, so in 1952, the family would be transferred to Minnesota and then to Minneapolis to be exact, and then to St. Louis Park. Unlike her mother, Marjorie enjoyed flaunting her wealth, or rather her family's wealth. As a neighbor recalled, quote, her child, her, her children, words are so hard today. I've had half a beer. I think it's because we've been up for almost 24 hours. Uh, her children were always dressed like out of a magazine ad, starched and pressed, plus she loved to entertain. When we were invited to dinner, it was never casual. It was a three or four course meal with fine china and polished silver. We were invited for dinner several times. She always seemed like a nice person. She was a product of her upbringing and that she liked a genteel life. The first time she invited me over, I was met at the door by the Doberman Pinscher peering out through the little window in the door. So she apparently liked to protect her wealth, I guess her family's wealth. She also had her compulsive, compulsive spending and lying. And after 20 years, Dick LeRoy would reach his limit. He divorced her in April of 1971. So gasp, a divorce. Marjorie's life wouldn't settle down and neither would the compulsive spending or lying. In 1976, Marjorie moved to Colorado. At a parents without partners meeting, she met her next husband. Just two months later, she married Roger Caldwell. Whoa, that's a quick turnaround. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and Two months. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Two months. Uh, hey, sometimes it works. Yeah, no, um, I... But yeah, 
I'm gonna. Seems impulsive. Spoiler alert, this one doesn't. <laughs> yeah. So with her extravagant spending history, the Caldwells were in serious financial debt by the spring of 1977, a year later. Wow, so she just squandered yeah. her family fortune. Oh, well, what she could. Right. So they purchased a property that they wanted to use as a horse ranch, and they weren't able to make the payments. With the threat of losing the ranch and with a lack of financial resources, they continued to spend. Because... You, that's what you do. You don't stop. You just keep, you keep going. Yeah. If you're running out of money, you just spend every yeah. other dollar that comes in. Well, because she would spend and spend and spend and her mom and the trust would foot the bill. Oh, okay. So they even bought a $5,500 horse for Marjorie's 16 year old son, Rick. For, for Marjorie's 16 year old son, Rick. So that's like the equivalent of buying your 16 year old a Porsche. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but this is a horse. Yeah. yeah, it's a horse. Yeah. And may I also point out that why are you buying another horse? You tried to poison one like 20 years yeah. ago. Like, why are you buying another one? You don't one? even like horses. Right. So she did. And she wanted an entire ranch. I don't know. I don't get it. But purchased, um, they also purchased $3,500 in turquoise and silver jewelry and also took a vacation at a mountain resort to the tune of $5,100. That check was returned though. So, Oops. Um, and they also lost the ranch, so things are uh, things are really, really going well for them. And how did they not have any money, right? Marjorie was from a very, very rich, wealthy family. How do they not have any? Well, I mean, she just dropped 15K right there. Right. Like, like that. Well, neither Marjorie nor Roger were employed, so that helps. But Marjorie received 22000 per year from the family trust. Okay. In inflation terms, that's $108,000 a year today. That's a pile of money. Like, that's a good salary. Like, that's a really good salary. That's what some households make. Like, wow. But, yeah, so she was running through it like nothing. You know, buying horses and stuff. What's also cool uh, is they weren't above insurance fraud. I knew it. Yeah, yeah. Surprise, you know, surprise, surprise. Within the same time frame, the couple received an insurance settlement of $74,000 for some stolen property from their home. I don't Holy need to do the, the inflation math for that. If $22,000 is $108,000 today, 74000 is a lot more. So uh, the check from the insurance company, though, the kicker, was issued to Marjorie Caldwell and two co-payees, to whom Marjorie owed $51,000 to. How do you owe 51,000? Thank you so much. How do you owe $51,000 to somebody? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know. How do you find yourself in a position to loan $51,000 to somebody aside from being a bank? Uh, Well, not wanting to pay that debt. So you just ignore it. Not wanting to pay that debt. The couple convinced the insurance company to reissue the check to Marjorie and another person. (laughs) That other person was someone that the couple just straight made up. Roger Caldwell signed the check to Marjorie. It's a made up person. Yes. So in May of 1977, living in a hotel in Golden, Colorado and facing potential criminal charges because of the return check at the resort... Roger went to Duluth to request $750,000 from the Congdon trustees. Well, and I feel like he probably wants half a million. So the $750,000 ask, that was smart. You ask higher. Ask higher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was to buy the ranch as well as a $50,000 loan to pay debts. Roger arrived with two letters from the doctor of 16-year-old Rick. The first letter stated uh, stated that living on a ranch would benefit Rick's health. Why? Okay. Why, right? I don't, I don't what's, know like, what's wrong, how. What's, what's wrong with his health? Oh, the open air will be great for him. 
Well, the second letter showed a fake diagnosis of cystic fibrosis for Rick and that he was part of an FDA experimental drug. So, I mean, super cool people, right? I mean, I get, I, I get sometimes desperate, uh, desperate times call for desperate, desperate measures. Why can I not say that? It's a fairly elaborate right? ruse here. But when you're attempted. making shit up about your kid, I mean, I feel like, ugh, yeah. Like, if I called in sick to work, I couldn't say that my kid was sick. Because right. then I'm like, well, if he gets sick, it's totally my fault, right? Now, poor Rick's going to get cystic fibrosis. But the, uh, oddly enough, though, the trustees declined the request. And things only unraveled more from there. I bet they were really happy yeah. with that. Well, and Marjorie had a bit of a temper, so uh, not surprising that that did not go well. And in mid-June, Roger contacted Marjorie's cousin, who was also a trustee. He told Thomas Congdon they didn't have any money and requested $25,000 to hire lawyer F. Lee Bailey for their financial problems. Because he's going to fix them, I guess? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I, don't. I love it. The answer is I've, I've squandered all this money. I've stolen some. I've lied a whole bunch. But Can we're going to sue somebody. Yeah, we're going to eh, sue somebody to, to, to hire a good lawyer, twenty five grand. Yeah. He'll get me out of everything, plus <laughs> get me more money. I guess. Well... I'm, I'm sure this is going to really surprise you when I tell you that they did not get the $25,000, but the hotel that they were at received a check for $400 from Thomas Congdon so that the Caldwells would not get evicted. Classic good news, bad news situation. Right. Yeah. $25,000 versus four. Um, it's, a, it's a win. On June 20th, the three cars that were owned by the Caldwells were repossessed. Because it was the 70s, they were able to make an arrangement with the bank that would allow Rick, the child to use one of the vehicles to get to and from work so long as the vehicle was returned every evening. To the bank. To the bank. They're like, sorry, kid, you got shit parents, but we'll let you work. Right. Um, you can borrow the but, car. But I also want to <laughs> point out that, poor the, Rick. that the kid had a job, but the parents did not. Right. Right? Yeah. So, no, they were trustees. That, they got, that's their job. Yeah. yeah. They, right. I guess. I mean, so it's hard work being cool a trustee, people. Don Palumbo. I guess. So, super cool parents. On June 22nd, a gas station attendant took the carte blanche credit card from Roger and Rick. The card was in the name of E.M. Congdon. It's not their name. Elizabeth. Make that leap. They had charged nearly $800 and not paid the bill. And... Was that, did that actually happen? Like, did, did, did this, was it, was that the seventies and the eighties where it's, where the credit card company would be like, no, take the card from them. Like, why don't they do that anymore? It would actually help me a lot. Uh, but yeah. That was a, yes, that was, was a, a that good was a rule. That was, that was a, a good rule. Yeah. Nope. Take that card from them. That's, that's bad news. Yeah. But that so, was a fake name on there. No, no, that's her mom. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. Her mom's card. Right. So not, yeah. all, right, all right. All right. So not their card. So even with all of this unraveling, Marjorie was still shopping for real estate. Yeah, I mean, why not? Probably with a coach purse, all that good stuff. Yeah. So she even entered into numerous purchase agreements, but then, of course, they would fall through because they didn't make any of the payments. So in the weekend of June 24th and 25th, Marjorie had set up an appointment with her real estate agent to look at a property listed at $1.3 million. Why not? Right. So the morning of June 24th, Marjorie's son, Rick, found a note from Roger that said he and his mother would be looking at properties all weekend and gave him a curfew of 12.30 a.m. both nights. There was also a $50 bill. Guess who never showed for the real estate appointment? Neither of them. Rick didn't see his stepdad from Wednesday, June 22nd through Monday, June 27th. Marjorie's mother, Elizabeth, had suffered a stroke nearly 10 years prior, and that stroke left Elizabeth paralyzed, requiring care around the clock. On June 26th, Velma, 
Petia, I believe is her last name. I, it's P-I-E-T-I-L-A. I'm butchering it. One of Elizabeth's nurses had been called in when the, when the originally scheduled nurse wasn't able to make it. The next day, when the day nurse came in to relieve the night staff at 7 a.m., she noticed the mansion, even though only one person lived there, was unusually quiet. The well, nurse, that's creepy. Yeah. How does a house with one person get unusually quiet? Like, but that loud, oh, the loud breather. I don't hear him. I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's like when the air conditioner turns off and it's like, holy shit, right. that thing's loud. You know, you don't really realize it. That's yeah, creepy. So, right. The nurse began to climb the steps of the grand staircase and stopped suddenly, just abruptly stopped. She quickly realized why it was so quiet. Velma laid in an odd position on the bench in front of the stained glass window on the landing, her legs dangling off the side. When the nurse got closer to her, she saw Velma's cold body covered in blood a candlestick laying on the floor nearby. The nurse finished the climb up the stairs to the second floor to Elizabeth's room. And when the nurse entered the room, she saw Elizabeth laying in bed, a satin pillow covering her face. Clutched in both of Velma's hands, police would find strands of hair, dark hair. On her left wrist, a dark colored stocking tied around it. The autopsy would show the cause of death being a skull fracture and blood loss. So if, the cause of death is blood loss. Like she laid there for a little while, yeah. you know. Elizabeth Congdon's body showed multiple bruises that had been inflicted just before her death. She had marks on her left wrist and pinky finger, which, would, which indicated she had worn a watch and a ring, which had both been removed after she died. Remember the ring she wore on her pinky finger? Of course. Yeah. Her cause of death was suffocation at approximately 2 a.m. Can we just, like this woman was paralyzed, right? Like what is wrong with you? Like it's, it, that's a whole, that's a whole other well, level. You're, you're a trustee. You want that money. Clearly you're coming for something. I mean, I'm assuming this is all, this is jumping to conclusions here. I don't know, but this, this has Margaret sociopath written all over it. Marjorie. Yeah. Police believe the murderer broke in through the basement window that had been, uh, that kind of broken. And then just below the window, a foot impression on a sofa was found. So somebody had broken through the window, slid through and stepped on the couch. The only fingerprint found in the house was a small latent print of poor quality on the candlestick used to kill Velma. The blood found in the house on the stairwell and in the bathroom were type O. Other than some jewelry missing from Elizabeth's room, nothing else seemed to be out of place except for Velma's car. The car was found in the airport's short-term parking lot. There was a coin missing and a drop of type O blood on the floor mount. When Jennifer heard of her mother's murder, she said, immediately, Marjorie did it. But of course, proving that would be a whole other case. So at 1.45 p.m. on the afternoon of the 27th, the hotel where the Caldwells lived received a call from Roger Caldwell. When Bertha Huskins answered the phone, he left a message for Marjorie to pick him up. When asked where she should go, where, where Bertha should tell her to go, Roger replied, it doesn't matter, she knows. On Tuesday, mind you, in 1977, they didn't have cell phones. Just, wanna, just want to throw that out yeah, there, right? So if, if she reminder. knows, yeah, if she knows, then okay. On Tuesday, June 28th, Roger Caldwell called the location of where their boarded horse was and told him his mother-in-law had been killed and that the inheritance, quote, of about $10 million would cover the bills and purchase of the horses. He made calls all over town, letting them know that their outstanding debts would be taken care of, including the bank where their three vehicles were. Hey, everybody, our problems are solved. So if, if $10 million is showing up the weekend before, if you know this is happening, would you maybe 
schedule an appointment to go look at a $1.4 million home because all of a sudden you're going to come into some money. So at the time of Elizabeth's death, the uh, inheritance that would be left to Marjorie was $8.2 million. She's the sole heir. Well, I mean, the kids, that, that's, but her, that's her, that's her, that's her share. That's her share. That's her okay. share. Okay. Um, so good old Roger. I mean, he was exaggerating by about $2 million, but it's okay. It's fine. When he was, uh, clearing up all of his debts. And of course, n- not surprisingly from the beginning, the Caldwells were suspects, right? I mean, if, if even her sister knew that, you know, of course they're whispers all over town people. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. So when they arrived in Duluth, Police obtained a search warrant for their hotel room. They were staying at, uh, at one of the hotels in town. And when they showed up, they were not there. Because knowing, of course, that the police were, oh, well, this is my assumption, knowing that police were kind of hot on their trail, he ended up at the hospital for an emergency. Because guess what? Just because, uh, just because you're at the hospital doesn't mean they can't serve the search warrant. But, I mean, they were just really were not smart. Um, but when, they, uh, when, the, when the police got there, they, they dug through everything, and it looked as though they were packing to leave. They'd just gotten there. Until he got sick and had to right. go to the hospital and yeah. hopefully not get arrested yep. because exactly. they would take pity on him. Right. Yeah. Among their belongings, they found jewelry belonging to Elizabeth, including the watch and the ring that she always wore. Sloppy. Very sloppy. And at the beginning of July, so just a few days later, Roger Caldwell was arrested. So, in a very, very long trial... Uh, that's, that's what it proved. It proved that it was sloppy and he would ultimately try to pull that up. He would ultimately be found, uh, guilty of that and guilty of two counts of murder sentenced to life in prison just after he was sentenced. So days after Marjorie was then arrested for conspiracy to commit murder. Her behavior was beyond odd. Like, and, and how I, I don't know how, how she wasn't hold, held in contempt of court. I don't know. But um, during the entire, the entire trial, she was knitting at the defense table. Oh. You know, hi, my, my prison term is, you know, is riding on the line. What I'm going to do for the next 10 years is just riding on the line. But uh, absolutely, yeah, I'm going to knit somebody a hat, right? And then she even brought a birthday cake for one of the jurors. A, how do you know it's their birthday? And, and B, are you serious? Like, yeah. So, I mean, her behavior, behavior was beyond odd. And whatever it was, it worked because she was acquitted. Wow. Too much circumstantial evidence. To say that she yeah. conspired. Yep. Yep. Roger guilty. You Roger said. guilty. Yep. Roger wow. appealed and Roger won the right to a new trial. And so he was, he was uh, offered a new trial in part because of the crappy latent print. It just didn't quite match up like he should have. And then also the, um, the hair that was found in the hands of the nurse was actually, um, it was dark hair and he had gray hair. But they assumed that it did come from, come from the, the murder. Obviously not wanting to chance the new trial, he pled guilty to second-degree murder. Credit for time served. Hmm. So that's that. None of, nobody really held accountable for the, the murder of the, two, of the two women. And Marjorie's chem- criminal habits did not end, though. In the early 90s, she was convicted of arson, and after just under two years in prison, she was released for good behavior. But so, wait, there's more. 
Of course. No, no ask yeah. a question. No, well, just, no. So, so arson, when you said he, he pled guilty to second degree murder, so he did still get sentenced and he got had sentenced. to go to jail. He was, he just he, wasn't, I guess, yeah, technically wasn't he as, was... Yeah. Obviously wasn't as bad. He didn't have to face a life sentence if it's second degree, I believe. So right. Got, right. So okay. I guess he wasn't yeah, he was held accountable but um but sentenced to to Okay, I just wanted to, to make I wanted to be clear. There is there yeah. is some yeah. portion of accountability. It, he was held accountable, yeah. But yeah. clearly Marjorie, who was probably the brains of this whole operation, she was setting him up right from the moment he became the stepdad. I felt like this guy was going to be her patsy at some point. 100%. I, was, yeah. I, I didn't know. I didn't think it would get this far. I expected she was going to somehow set him up and, and push all the debt at his feet and then sure. divorce him and, and abandon him with debt. But instead, she convinced him to murder two people and then abandoned him in that. Yeah. And what was interesting is it wasn't, it wasn't an easy marriage. I mean, he was, he was a, a, a bit of a drinker uh, and, and when he became intoxicated, became violent. Right. But you know, and, and I think of course you'd think that he would, uh, he would be the one that had the the power in the family. Uh, and no, no, she, she, puppet mastered him through and through. Absolutely. And he probably knew it, which is what mm-hmm. drove him to drink. And he understood he didn't have control, probably right. really hard right. for him. Yeah. One of the, one of the theories though, and, and this is, I, I think, I, I mean, I, she's 80 some years old at this point, but, um, I, there's got, she had to have more to do with it because whose hair, uh, was in the nurse's hand because the, the nurse's hair wasn't dark. So where does that where does that where does that hair come from? Of course, that's I mean she was my first suspect on who put the hair there, whose whose hair it was that got ripped out of their head and you're you're looking at the situation where Roger was not going to independently choose to commit these two murders. No. Without Marjorie's say so. That well, of that course it's not. absurd. No. And of course, yes, it's circumstantial evidence and I'm surprised I'm surprised he wasn't bitter enough to, to testify against her actually. Yeah. Just given given the way this went 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 down, I'm surprised he'd say no. Yeah, actually, she was the one that put me up to this. Right. So there, there, there's something there, I guess, that he maintained a a truth to her. If she was tried for conspiracy, undoubtedly they attempted to get him to testify against her. Mm-hmm. And if he didn't, fascinating that he chose to maintain that secret if it if it's real. Sure. Well, I mean, love is super powerful, I think. <laughs> I don't think that's what's going on here. Uh, <laughs> is this is this one derived from love? Maybe. Right. right. But uh, when I say there's more, and I mean recently. So she was in an assisted living home because uh, she's now in her 80s. She was in an assisted living home and she had another target. So she had a, a friend in there and oddly enough, and super mysteriously, his wife dies, poisoned, because she's pretty good at that, um, I think, if I, people don't catch her. but I was kind of waiting for poison to play in a bigger or, no, or another role in this story. Yeah. And, and actually, I do want to go back to a, a part in that, too. Um, but uh, so his wife, his wife passes away, and then she is arrested again for... Uh, cause he dies then and, oh, then he, and died. he dies later and she's what? arrested for, um, there was a, there, because basically she had uh, everything put into her name from so him. It was fraud. Yeah. So yeah. she died. Yeah. Then he died. And, and then, and then Marjorie, his assets oh my gosh, were, had oh, oh, for weird. All of yeah. his assets are in your yeah. name. Yeah. Yeah. Super weird. Well, so, he, I was going to be his new wife. So, I mean, how do you, 
Like I don't, I don't want to be. That was I don't a plan. Be, I don't want to be. Ju- yeah, that was absolutely planned. Um, but I, and I don't want to be. I don't want to be judgy um, because obviously there's there is some mental health. If she's diagnosed, I mean, in the fifties as a sociopath, you know, we didn't even talk about mental health in the fifties. So if if she's got some sort of diagnosis, then like, uh, you know, it's it's serious. But how do you piss away your entire life just? just trying to, to have inheritance left to you. And I mean, and end up killing your mother, having your mother suffocated to the point where skin is rubbed off of her nose because, because as you know, holding the pillow over her head, her head is thrashing and it rubs the skin off their nose. So that's, that was a, a, a clear sign that she had been suffocated that way. Other than of course the pillow being on her, on her head. Um, but one thing, to one thing I didn't mention um, with the poison uh, is there had been a point, and of course it, it was speculated that Marjorie also tried to poison her mother with pills, uh, but they were they were caught ahead of time. So okay, but of course nobody, uh, you know, if they're not going to talk about a mental health diagnosis, they're certainly not going to say that somebody tried to kill one of the members. Right. I, I thought perhaps there was going to be a link between her and the deaths of other family members. No. Her, okay. Because no, no, they, I mean, they, they really died in, in subsequent yeah. manners in a handful well, they of were, years. So they, they were out leaving, of the picture They quick. were leaving shit to her. So yeah. they, were, they were safe, unfortunately. But yeah. So that's fun. And still maintained, yep. she still wanted to kill people yep. in a nursing home. Yep, yep. Um, and she is. What do you think? She just got bored in I, the end? I think so. I mean, got but, bored, wanted but, some more money. But she is, uh, she is still hanging out in Arizona and she is like 87 years old and I don't know, watch out. Watch her, so watch she her was hands. never convicted of anything related to the alleged poisonings of the two individuals from the nursing home? No, the, just the wife. No, she just the wife. Oh, that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, she's a super cool person. Uh, resources for today, glensheen.org, um, an article by Thomas Backrood, menpost.com. That was for the historical stuff as well as uh, Zenith City Press. Uh, one of the big sources is, uh, it's actually a really good book. I've read it a couple of times, Will to Murder by Gail Feichtinger, John DeSanto and Gary Waller, and then court documents as well. So check out our merch store. You can find the link on any of our social media uh, or at tpublic.com slash store slash Midwest Murder. Be sure to subscribe, rate, review on whichever platform you find Midwest Murder on. A big thanks to everyone who has it. It does mean a lot of things for uh, for our podcast. And Midwest Murder is hosted by this guy to my right, Joan Alanto, and myself, Don Palumbo, and produced by the Good Talk Network. I wrote this episode, and uh, we thank you so much for listening and for your support. All right. Thanks, everybody. Our, well, that Gosh. fell out wrong. Arbiter. Our <laughs> Thanks, Arbiter. Thank <laughs> you, Minneapolis. Talk. Yeah, thanks, guys. Oh.